0: Hey, everyone, it's Ariel Hawani. And I'm Chuck Mindanao And I'm P.T. Carroll. And together we are 3Pack. Join us on the brand new Spotify Live app immediately after all of the biggest fights in combat sports. And also during the weigh-ins, because that's when the real drama happens. So what are you waiting for? Follow the Ring MMA show right now on our exclusive Spotify podcast feed.
1: And come join the best community in MMA. Peace. We're out of here. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube.
0: Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. David? Yes? This is a pre-taped podcast, so can we start with some evergreen takes that will still be valid on December 26th? <laughs> well, sure.
2: I don't even... Is that uh, your, 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 your high hopes for this? Uh, I mean, We're I not hope recording so this, valid. are we? Uh, this yeah. is you and me talking <laughs> the here.
0: St- the stakes are relatively low. <laughs> okay, take number one. Elon Musk has done it again. <laughs>
2: I see what you're doing here. Yes.
0: Pretty sure that will still be valid on December 26th. Um, Take number two, kind of more of a question. Is Donald Trump losing his grip on the Republican Party? (laughs) Oh, man. Discuss. Still valid on December 26th. And finally, um, I know this is going to be valid. The Cowboys suck. (laughs) That's it. That's all I got coming up on the press box. It's our year in media episode. We journalistically revisit big stories like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Will Smith slapping Chris rock at the Oscars, the Elon Musk takeover of Twitter and the Democrats, not totally screwing up the midterms. Plus the journalists and publications we lost in 2022, all that more on the press box, a part of the ringer podcast network. Happy holidays, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, producer. Erica Cervantes, thank you for hanging out with us on your holiday. If you were indeed taking a holiday, David, I thought we'd call our year in media podcast "The Takes We Had."
3: <laughs> okay. Times Magazine Sounds good.
0: has the lives they live. This is the takes we had. And by the way, we're not going to revisit too many of our takes from 2022. Oh. I'm still smarting over the grand old party, still got it on election night. (laughs) How'd that one turn out? Got a few stories for you from 2022, some big and of world historical importance, some not so much. Let's go through them and remember a little bit about them and also how they were covered. Let's start in January. The New York Times buys the athletic. Mm. How do we look back? On that media
2: transaction. Oh, man. Well, with binoculars, for one thing, that seems like so... I mean, it was so long ago, but I can't believe that was this year. Um, I think that there is a lot to be said for the fact that it feels like relatively little has changed. Um, Mm -hmm. I think regardless of your thoughts on The Athletic, I think anybody um, that's working for any media company that is acquired by another company, Uh, the best possible scenario is that things proceed relatively unchanged. Now, who knows what's going to happen in the years to come, but so far um, it's been pretty, you know, the water's been pretty steady. Um, I, I think that, you know, you and I were both sort of geared up for more integration, you know, more, more, more attempts at sort of streamlining the, the New York Times sports page and comparing it, I mean, and, and, and finding its place alongside the athletic. Um, so in terms of grading on the, on the, uh, you know, popcorn scale, <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna rate pretty low, but, uh, like I said, I think it's overall, it's pretty good. They still produce really good content, really necessary content. Um, and you know, as it's been since the start, uh, the vast majority of that vast, vast, vast majority of that is on the sort of micro level, which is um, not, you know, which is a dying art in so many ways. So um, you know, I, I think hats off to the New York Times for understanding that A, that's where the value is in the company and B, um, you know, tamper as little as possible until you figure out, you know, it, it, until if, when and if you figure out what the next phase
0: is. There's definitely some sorting out that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. We've all heard rumblings, or at least I've heard rumblings that, you know, what the budget for writers to travel at The Athletic, which is if you're doing old school beat writing of the dying art you talk about is important. How much of that are they going to be able to continue to do? Athletic's got a new executive editor, Steve Ginsberg, who came over from The Washington Post. Does The Times' vision of The Athletic, which as you say, has been... Fairly stable from the athletic it bought. Mm-hmm. Does that change? Is that going to get smaller in terms of the number of beats they're going to cover? Are they still going to have this big, broad, let's get as much of the world in as we can vision of sports writing? Mm-hmm. I am also interested, as you say, to see what happens to the Times' own sports section, which the day before we recorded this pod and my print issue had three articles. <laughs> three articles. Um, I think we see which way the times is going there, but it'll be interesting to find out. I do think the founders of the athletic, I think we said this at the time, those guys have a certain measure of scoreboard in this whole thing. Because go on. if you listen to people in our industry, how many people did you hear say a version of the athletic's gonna go out of business? The athletics gonna go bust. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be sold for lot. parts. And if you and I had a dollar for every one of those, we would be lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills right now for every Mm -hmm. proclamation like that. It didn't, it went into the times again, what is the athletic going to look like? Totally valid question. But I think those guys do deserve a lot of credit for piloting that website in there, despite a lot, a lot of skepticism within the industry. All right, let's go to February. David, Russia invades Ukraine. Still, a big story on our plates. There was, remember the initial days after the invasion when a lot of people thought Kyiv might fall? Yeah. It didn't. It hasn't. Vladimir Zelensky is in Washington, D.C. right now as we talk.
2: I oh, know. Yeah. Good timing.
0: Ukrainian army made major gains late in the year. A couple of journalistic notes for you. We were reminded by the bravery about the bravery of war correspondents. Mm hmm. Thinking uh, in particular of CNN's Matthew Chance, New York Times' Jeffrey Gettleman had a really good piece the other day about a killing there uh, that was revealed after a Russian retreat. International Federation of Journalists say 12 media workers died covering the war. Uh, where is your mind right now on Ukraine?
2: Well, this, this one doesn't seem like so long ago because obviously it's still ongoing, although I did drive past. Uh, you know we i stand with ukraine yard placard the other day and it uh you know was noticeably weathered it did it, it see, it seem it seemed like it does feel like that movement is a long time ago um it's uh i think the, the the journalistic side that you brought up i think is 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 a good one to focus on um you know obviously for the intents of this podcast uh there were there was a lot of sort of remembering not just the talents and the sort of valiance of of war reporters but um just to sort of see it in action i, th- I think sort of it kind of was energizing in a certain way you know it was inspiring um I, it's also i think you know without getting to end of the year you know retrospective Melancholy or whatever it does any sort of conflict on this scale seems to have you feel like there's a different resonance with the older that you get you know and it's and I feel like there's nothing I can say that like you know my dad hasn't said at some point in his life, but it does sort of um i don't know there's just a deeper reality to this than some of the previous conflicts on the scale and and that's even including some of the ones that America's been more directly involved in you know and and, and for me and a lot of that is my age and my perspective and some of that's i mean i think a huge part of it though is is the media age that we live in you know that you're that we've talked about this some on the show but um obviously in the early days experiencing it live on multiple cable channels but even since then you know um experiencing on social media and 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 traditional media and everything else i think it's um it's uh I think it's a testament to the journalistic ability to sort of continue telling a story over a long period of time and to continue to underscore the significance of something. And, and,
0: and, and certainly there's failures to that in that count, too. I don't know. What do you, what, what's your take? Over a long period of time, that's a really interesting idea because I remember you and I talking in the first couple of weeks when all of us seemingly were so transfixed by news from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about it so much, and you, you saw the eyes of, of a lot of Americans on that story. I think we were talking about it in the context of CNN and cable news and you know scrambling to cover a story like that. It has been interesting to watch it um, the way Americans sort of think about it and pay attention to it mm-hmm. over the course of many, many months, um, the Ukrainian army's gains in the later this year, I think brought a lot of people back to that story maybe because they were sort of able to see a chapter of that story, maybe unfolding in a way that was hard to over the period of months, right? It's just kind of a mile marker. Now, whether, where it goes from there, we don't know. I also think just in terms of the media stuff, I'm really interested to see what the limits or effectiveness of Russian state media is Mm -hmm. because this is Vladimir Putin having lots and lots of setbacks. I saw him admitting some limited version of that today. Mm-hmm. Um, but how much of that is able to reach the Russian people? What kind of picture are they getting? What kind of what kind of message are they hearing uh-huh. about the war? It's a fascinating question and something that I'll be interested in reading more about in 2023. Let's go to March 2022, David. We had the sports announcer version of the late shift. All these jobs that have been occupied by yeah. people seemingly forever suddenly changed. Troy Aikman and Joe Buck, who had done 20 plus years at Fox, suddenly go from Fox to Monday night football on ESPN. Mm-hmm. They are replaced by Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson. Al Michaels, who had called the premier night NFL game in this country, since 1986, jeez, goes from Sunday night football on NBC to Amazon, where he's calling Thursday night football with Kirk Herbstreit. Mm-hmm. He's replaced by Mike Tirico, who had been patiently waiting for the job <laughs> of calling Sunday night football. And then there were all these intriguing almosts that happened. Aikman almost went to Amazon. Sean McVay thought about going to Amazon and actually mm-hmm. leaving the Rams. Al Michaels one was thinking about going everywhere before finally going to Amazon. How do you look back at announcer late shift? It's been, um,
2: I think it's interesting how, well, for one thing, how I don't know, might be in the minority on this, but how little it sort of affected my viewing habits or my, my experience watching games. Um, I think if anything, the sort of like ongoing subplot of, you know, Al Michaels wondering, you know, what, what he's doing there, (laughs) watching (laughs) some of those games, especially early in the season, um, is, was more significant than the degree to what, you know, to which we missed him or, you know, anyone else on any of the other mainstays on, on other networks, uh, who had moved around. It's, I don't know. Um, I think that we'll look back on, I think, I mean, as, as much money as was handed around, you know, as much as, 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 as seismic as some of those shifts seems to be, I think that we'll probably look back on 2022 as, and all of those giant contract offers as just the sort of parting shot that led to YouTube getting Sunday ticket (laughs) and like just a sort of like reinvention of the entire, I mean, I think that will be the, the landmark, you know? And I think that, I think that everything else will be,
0: um, Will we'll be kind of pretext for that. Meaning the end of broadcast television, the last blast of broadcast television, yeah. and the start of the next thing, mm-hmm. which is streaming. I totally agree. And I think that I think just football being on Amazon yeah. at all is a lot more significant than who's calling a football game. Yeah. And I say this as somebody who thinks about announcers way too much. But it was interesting, right? Because that whole thing, when it was like $18 million, $17 million, $35 million for Tom Brady, Mm -hmm. it started this discussion about how much are announcers really worth? What are they worth? And the answer, I think, after watching a year of football with everybody in different spots is something. They're certainly worth something. But in terms of this, like changing your viewing experience, it doesn't all that much.
2: I mean, I still think the the, the notion of sort of continuity of stability, well, uh, pre-existing stability is still is very important, right? I think that the, the impression that Amazon is a serious football outfit is probably worth whatever they paid for the announcers and certainly for the contract or whatever. Absolutely. Uh, but, but and and I think to some extent we're talking about it's not sunk money, but it's but it's you know, you sort of pay what you got to pay. You know, these things—it's like the price—the price of an announcer is like the price of a sports team. It's like there's only so many of them that are established, and and the price is exa- the price is whatever someone's willing to pay for
0: them. You know, it's not. not and, yeah, but, I agree. And all the people we're talking about are really good, right? So it's not like yeah, you, the they all cleared the bar of this person's really good at their job. Mm-hmm. This person deserves a job like this, whether it's on network or Amazon or whatever it is.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, who knows, in a time of sort of, like, new media expansion and also just, like, contraction in different ways, like, I'm sure there was somebody somewhere in Amazon who was like, dude, we just spent a lot of money on them, but my guess is that they, that as, that like, you know, as an organization, they probably haven't for one second thought, maybe we should have gotten this other person who we could have gotten for $500,000, <laughs> you know, like, that's, I don't think that's, they probably spent a lot of time worrying about that
0: as opposed to just about everything else. no. But it's just funny, once you clear that bar, I think of like competence and excellence, then I find myself asking, and I was asking this in the spring too, is like, what was this about? You know, what, what value Mm -hmm. was at stake here? Because there is the thing, or it seemed like the thing, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day that Fox was going to say, okay, announcers, we can create announcers, right? You don't have to Mm -hmm. pay announcers. So we're gonna go, Kevin Burkhardt, who came up through our system, Greg Olson, who's in his second year calling games, and we're going with that. Mm-hmm. We're not gonna pay $18 million. We have a different idea, a different value. And then they just went and signed Tom Brady for $35 million or 37 million, <laughs> whatever it was a year. So it's like, well, mm-hmm. that wasn't much of an idea.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> These people are all unique broadcasters. Al Michaels is different than Joe Buck, is different than Burkhardt. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, aesthetically, watching a game like you know it's not like they're like i believe a football game should be called like this no they just like small we're talking about small variations in the thing so it's just one of those cases to me and i i'm a broken record on this but oftentimes the transaction story is actually more interesting and and more shiny in and of itself than what actually results from the transaction yeah i, I say that about that. announcing basketball politics whatever it is but again Fox
2: has the uh, does have the ability to create, right? To 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 build from in, from the inside or to 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 create the next Joe Buck or whoever for an upstart, especially someone on the streaming side. And we we say this stuff like it's not these two things are becoming the same thing, you know? I mean, it's, it's not like there's a huge I mean, I think that the hope of YouTube or Amazon is that people are engaging with them the exact same way they engage with broadcast television through the same Apple TV or smart TV or whatever else. But all that's to say, I think from the streaming side, it's almost like a tech support conversation, right? It's like we know when we roll out the new operating system there's going to be complaints, you know, it's like, or, you know, when when we, when we debut the new design of our webpage, you know, at the ringer.com, which is not happening. I'm just, as an example, we know that people are going to whine and complain that it's not like it used to be. That's, you know, whatever the, the most important thing is to be able to like, get a handle on ha- have have an expected number of complaints have a manageable number of complaints be able to have some some sort of like grasp on the situation and not be caught off guard and the way that you do that in this in, a, in when you're launching a sports broadcast is to you know we know that people complain about every single football play by play and color commentator in the you know in existence yes but that's sort of the beauty of it we know what we we can predict the complaints about these guys that were giving fifty million dollars, you know, we know <laughs> right. exactly, and 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 maybe those that'll take a little bit of the of, of the you know, if 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 they're complaining about the broadcaster and not complaining about the lag time
0: or whatever in the stream, then that's a positive, you know, that works. Next moment, let's go to March. Will Smith slaps Chris Rock at the Oscars. You know what my abiding memory of this is? What in a very narrow. TV production kind of way, the American broadcast completely missed it. (laughs) They had the wrong angle when Will Smith went up to the stage. So you really couldn't tell whether he actually hit Chris Rock Mm -hmm. or not. And then they bleeped everything out because heaven forbid, we can't let celebrities talk on a celebrity award show. Mm -hmm. And all of us who are watching TV, one of the most amazing moments of live television that we'll, we'll ever see in our lifetimes, we had to go to the foreign broadcast on Twitter to find out what happened. It didn't make any sense if you were watching it on television. That's just, that's phenomenal to me.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: That somehow, and again, I understand, you know, sensors and you push the button and you're like, wow, this is, (laughs) we don't, there could be nothing more shocking than that. If you're in the production truck, I mean, there's just Mm -hmm. no, there's almost nothing that could possibly happen that would blow your mind. Like Will Smith hitting somebody on stage for real at the Oscars. Yeah. But, but it didn't get on American television. It never made it. We had to reconstruct it through Twitter and other stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think that's that's a really important point. I mean, I think that sort of, but as a corollary from that, I mean, you as someone who saw Chris Rock do his stand-up bit discussing this, uh, it's interesting that you go to that because I think from where I'm sitting, it's it's shocking how little sort of there we've dealt with that moment since it happened. Like, what I mean, that says a lot about our modern modern media structure. I mean, I don't know that we needed like a more public mea culpa from will smith or we need didn't need them to shake hands on national television or like whatever but what a wild moment that like it seems like we just were totally obsessed with for such a short period of time and now i don't know i mean if you if i mean now it's people are trying to draw a line between that and the failure of the new will smith movie emancipation <laughs> at the box office but i don't think there's those two things are necessarily connected i don't think you know i think if this was men in black 3 i think we would all just be happy to forget that any of that ever happened you know it just sort of just an i mean a justifiable just obsession for such a short period of time and now it's it just sort of gets swallowed up by by the timeline or something you know and and, and it just seems like it feels like a meme that happened at some point and, and less like a real thing
0: it's a really good point i mean did i guess it came up a little bit because when will smith was on the publicity tour that kind of turned into an apology tour Mm -hmm. and he started talking about it more, but you're right. There is a question of like, the media is going to cover things or continue to cover things when there are, when there's new information and Will Smith didn't really talk about it for a long time. And there was that kind of limited apology. I don't, I don't quite remember what forum that occurred in, but there was like that limited apology sort of right after it happened. And Chris Rock addressed it mostly in standup as opposed to sitting down for a big interview, which he could certainly push the button and do at any time with anybody Mm -hmm. he wanted. And so what happens is like, there aren't, there isn't stuff for all of us to grasp onto. Yeah. And then by the time Will Smith starts talking about it again, a lot of time has passed and we've been thinking about the midterms and we've been thinking about Musk and all this other stuff. So that's just, interesting. you're right. That's like, it's so interesting because it's like, what has to happen for a story like that to continue to be that in the front of everybody's mind for six months after it happens?
2: And I think it's impossible for anything to be to some extent, um, which I think, yeah, I mean, it, if anything hangs around that long, and we're, t- I mean, we're talking about Ukraine, a totally different scale of just concept, you know, so, I mean, I think for anything in the sort of pop cultural sphere, even something that wild, uh to be there it, it it's it's almost impossible now,
0: all right. The next moment from June, the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. Um I don't think we can do significant justice to just how meaningful that was, just how horrific that was for lots and lots of people in this country. I guess one way I'd put it, David, is we seem to have a lot of moments during. Trump's time in office where you and I collectively said, wow, that's a thing, a horrifying thing I would never, I never thought I'd see happen. Mm-hmm. This felt like maybe the last of those happened after he was out of office. The, the with,
2: last in 2022? Or do you, I mean like the, the well, last
0: maybe there's more, maybe there's more to come. I think um, there probably will be. But let's say the one that happened after he was out of office by the hand of justices he put on mm-hmm. the bench how do you think about the end of roe v wade
2: yeah i mean it's um uh well i mean it's hard to imagine anything that is more that would be more sort of terrifying uh you know confidence shattering um uh embarrassing uh, you know difficult problematic you can just you know so many words could be applied Um, it's a, um, uh, honestly an endpoint to this sort of political movement that's absorbed, I mean, that's taken place over much of our lives that I didn't think, I honestly don't, didn't think we'd ever get to. And you know, you're right. Trump put the people on the Supreme Court that made it happen. I think probably any Republican in that seat would have done, would have put the same or similar people on the Supreme Court. But I do think there's an, an, there's a parallel to Trump is that it's a sort of, it's that sort of, it's that, um, the sort of almost farcical endpoint to this movement, you know, that it's, uh, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that I thought, that, that there is part of me that thought this would never happen, but also I don't think that the people that like, you know, I don't think Mitch McConnell 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, would have thought it would have ever happened. I don't think that was the point, you know, I think the point was just getting votes and, and, um, and, you know, here we are um thankfully it seems like well thankfully i mean i think that i think that it's it's a it's a such a significant issue i mean such a such a real like it just matters so fucking much that that uh i i think that it will continue obviously to have a ton of political and social relevance and i think that we'll be telling the story of how this thing gets fixed over the next hopefully couple of years but probably more you know i think that that's um i think you'll probably be able to sort of plot the course of (laughs) of like american history on that a little bit you know it's just that we got to the point where that happened and then hopefully we'll get to a point where where reason and humanity and everything else prevail
0: the nba playoffs are here and we all know playoff mode is a thing listen to the evidence Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Let's go to August. You'll remember then that Brian Stelter host of reliable sources, media writer, newsletter writer at CNN was ousted by the new regime. And you and I got our first peek at what the future of that network might look like. Jeff Zucker run it for a long time. Chris Licht is now in. CNN was pursuing this new more unpartisan, is that a word? Identity. Mm-hmm. Which felt like they were renouncing some of their old identity, the one they had developed over the Trump years. This is a weird one for me in a lot of ways because, look, CNN, we'll see how that shakes out, willing to give it a chance, et cetera, et cetera. But it was just so funny to hold up Brian Stelter of all people. It's as if he were this writer for the nation or this liberal bomb thrower. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and when they did that it was like oh wait a second you know are you looking back at what this network did during the later trump years with embarrassment is that what this is because you and i had 100 conversations at the beginning of trump that cnn seemed like it got caught really flat-footed they were showing all those trump speeches they put jeffrey lord on tv but i felt by the end of his presidency when you listen to jake tapper and anderson cooper and in the panelists that would come on, it was like, we're doing what we think we need to do. This guy's lying. <laughs> this guy's mm-hmm. being a racist. This guy's doing a thousand other terrible things. We need to come on TV and say that. Yeah. That is what is required of this moment, not trying to be like, well, on the one hand and on the other hand. And I just felt. What bugs me about this is them looking back at that and saying like, wow, that was wrong in some way or another. Mm -hmm. You did the wrong thing there. And I don't care about the ratings perspective. I just, I don't think that was the wrong thing. And I think CNN, again, you and I love to make fun of cable news and we'll do it again. But I think CNN got a lot about that right.
2: Yeah. I mean, and I think that it's... (sighs) um... I mean, I think one of the things that Trump years did, and it's not just Donald Trump, although he was, you know, a great uh, adversary of the press, but I think one of the things we've seen over the past decade or so is that calling out journalists, lying about them, slandering them, libeling them, whatever else, uh, is an incredibly effective technique because journalists by and large can't and won't fight back or at least not get in the mud and fight in the terms that they're, you know, they're having stuff flung at them. And that stuff sticks i mean does anybody that trump went after did anybody for the trump went after really emerge as some sort of valiant hero i mean jim acosta maybe but like it's not like he's you know megan kelly the nbc no. nightly news or anything like that you know i mean it's it, it's not like he's like a celebrity um uh, yeah i mean it's you can you can you know insult and shame journalists and get away with it. And I think that's why, because, because to a large degree, perception is reality, right? I mean, this is the media, this is show business. And, um, Brian Stelter was, you know, perceived as, uh, a liberal, you know, automaton just because he like said things that were factually true. Well then, um, if you're CNN, you have to decide whether or not you, they're going to stick with somebody that is perceived to be that, even if you think that they did the right thing. Right. I mean, we don't know what they think, but, even, but, but like the best case scenario is maybe it wasn't worth it even if they stood by him. But that's that's where that's where the sort of rubber meets the road. Right. You have to choose to stick by um, the people that are doing good jobs and doing right by the country and by your company, because, um, you know, the next thing you know, they're going to it's going to be somebody else. Right, and it's going to be somebody else that that who's whoever you know. Half of Twitter is insisting gets fired or whatever. So, anyway, yes. I mean,
0: when you when you give into the perception created by dishonest people, mm -hmm. you've lost. You know that, and as you say, there's no way to stop it because it will continue. mm A couple more for you. October, Elon Musk takes control of Twitter. (laughs) We could almost just put a bookmark right there because we've talked so much about it,
2: and we'll be talking about it the next time we're here. Yeah.
0: Uh, somebody on Reddit wanted us to see this Guardian headline from the other day. Elon Musk breaks silence after 10 million Twitter users vote for him to step down.
3: <laughs>
0: Did Elon Musk ever have a significant period of silence since he has been running Twitter? I, I, I don't think that's quite a breaking of silence. Uh, thank you, Reddit user, for pointing that one out. <laughs> and finally, from November, David, the Democrats didn't totally screw up the midterms. Yeah. Big wins for John Fetterman, Mark Kelly, Catherine Cortez-Masto, Katie Hobbs in Arizona. There's been some immediate political effects, like the Democrats holding the Senate and Joe, the Kobe Stopper Biden, getting ready to run again in 2024. (laughs) Guess we'll get the final word in the new year on that one. And then also on the other side, Donald Trump. Yeah. Seemingly maybe sort of kind of in a weakened state where everybody in the party feels like they can take shots at him now. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on the 2022 20, midterms? Um, Yeah. I mean, not much more than what you,
2: you said and what we've already said, it was a, you know, narrow victory that in historical context looks like a pretty significant one. Although, um, you know, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin looks like they're doing about everything they can
0: to sort of <laughs> dampen the mood. Um amazing that would happen with the Democrats. Like who would have who would have guessed yeah. that triumph could be followed immediately by <laughs> by disarray as they like yeah. to say on Twitter.
2: Um the you know I think that the Trump candidate's losing is is kind of overblown in terms of what that means for Trump. Um, because obviously this was an election that was about more than one person's endorsements, but, um, but I do think there's some sort of bellwether stuff in there. And I do think that, uh, I don't think it means Trump is eminently weak, beatable, whatever else by someone in the party or outside of it, but, um, but. Uh, I don't know. I I really hesitate after everything we've been through um, with, you know, over the past five, 10 years to, to oversimplify, to make any broad proclamations. don't want to be too expansive even at the end of the year. Um, But man, when you announce your presidential run and then the next big announcement is that you're like putting out a line of NFTs. uh,
0: (laughs) That was so awesome
2: yeah if you want to if you want to draw if you want to draw a corollary between the midterms and between trump's announcement it's it's sort of it's like the lack of seriousness is even more severe than it was before <laughs> and i don't know i don't know if that matters f- for the next presidential election though I don't know that seriousness really has any bearing on anything but it does just seem like it does sort of seem like it, it's like you know trump the candidate and sort of the party in general, or like a, you know, he's like a dude who like, who like, you know, did a, did a, did a keg stand and then hit a half court shot. And now he thinks that he can hit every half court shot, you know, like it's just, it's not, it's, it just seems like, I don't know. <laughs> that was a terrible analogy, but it's, but it's, uh, it just, it's, it just seems so deeply unserious, you know? Um, Nate Silver asked on Twitter, um, Whether or not Trump was actually running. And he was trying to kind of come up with some sort of semi serious metric, like based on like rallies in actual battleground states. Like, what's the over under on battleground state rallies that Trump was going to actually do? And that would determine whether or not he's running for president. You know, is it over greater than or less than seven (laughs) battleground rallies in the, you know, (laughs) between now and election day? I think it's a valid question, but I think that it's the same questions we had last time Trump ran, which is to say that. Trump's sort of, well, sorry for the wrestling metaphor. I mean the wrestling uh vocabulary, but Trump's going to as always sort of works himself into a shoot over these this this stuff, right? I mean it's like I don't know what his motivation is. Um we can kind of imagine what they are, but you know, I I, I no matter how serious he is right now, I'm I'm guessing he will get more serious as as, you know, voting time approaches. We'll see, I don't know.
0: What do you think? He likes rallies. I mean, that was kind of the only way his first campaign existed. Yeah. You know, but couldn't
2: you imagine a world in which he just gave like a weekly rally in Florida and, 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 <laughs> and people, and people like bust in from other places to see him. Like it's Woodstock or something.
0: Yeah. Just in like one, we decided to like do all the tapings in one arena.
2: Yeah. I'm doing a <laughs> homestand It Like whatever. This is a,
0: <laughs> by the way, we can't forget that the best part about his announcement was that Don Jr. could not attend because he was on a hunting trip in the mountains out west. It's still the funniest thing I have ever heard. I hope Cormac McCarthy was considering a line like that for (laughs) Stella Maris. Put together an in-memoriam list, David, of the journalists and media people we lost. This is a partial list, of course. From the sports world, soccer writer Grant Wall, who just turned 49, Mm. shockingly at the World Cup, New Yorker baseball writer and fiction editor Roger Angel died this year at age 101. Vin Scully, who was still on Twitter, Dodger announcer, Major League Baseball announcer, died at 94. ESPN NFL reporter John Clayton, CNN sportscaster Fred Hickman died. Uh, From outside the sports world, Bernard Shaw, the legendary CNN anchor, Hollywood reporter Nikki Fink, historian David McCullough. By the way, this was a lot more people than I remembered on this list. Mm -hmm. Vogue's Andre Leon Talley. Granta editor, former editor, Ian Jack.
3: Mm.
0: Jewel Campbell, who created the SI Swimsuit issue. Mm -hmm. The Wall Street Journal's Terry Teachout, drama critic over there and essayist. The conservative funny man who we talked about on this podcast, PJ O'Rourke. Barbara Ehrenreich, author of Nickel and Dimed. Mort Janklow and Sterling Lord, who were gigantic names. In the world of books, they were agents. Mike Davis, who wrote City of Quartz*; Gail Green, the food critic. Peter Sheldahl, art critic at The New Yorker. Eric Bollert, the media critic. And then just last week, CNN correspondent, Drew Griffin. Holy mackerel, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of very, very talented and significant contributors to the worlds we talk about. We also lost a couple of publications. The print edition of Entertainment Weekly. I'm not sure I had more fun on a podcast this year than when Owen Gleiberman and Ty Burr came on to talk about EW and its heyday. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, don't you feel like for people, you had to have been there in the 90s? But holy dude, how much did we learn about pop culture from the weekly edition of Entertainment Weekly that arrived in our mailbox? Oh, it was transformative. I mean, it's
2: it it introduced i th- i mean as a, you know we didn't have the hollywood reporter or anything like that growing up you know and when entertainment no. weekly took off it kind of gave us the vocabulary to think about the film industry you know mm-hmm. it showed us i mean and obviously it's a very specific angle but like dude we weren't thinking about that stuff in that way before um you know the the, the 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 most information the most like the most complicated thing you knew was like what the highest grossing film of all time was before that you know and and maybe you learned that from Entertainment Weekly. Um, it was it, yeah it, it was it's it's wild how significant it was and the fact that it was weekly I think added to its significance. I do think that being a weekly sort of allow like leaves you exposed to be totally just eaten alive by the internet when when you know that and when when just sort of web publishing and social media just occupy so much of our lives um the coolest thing about entertainment weekly at the time was like the photo spreads and that stuff's just gone the moment that you can post those things online you know so <laughs> where they
0: would get like the cast of the x-files for the new season mm-hmm. and they would or get dude, the cast of pictures. like the new
2: star wars movie like whatever it was i mean i know that vanity fair had dibs on first dibs on a lot <laughs> of that stuff but <laughs> Any sort of nerd culture thing where you could like look at the costumes, like hold your face up to the semi-glossy yes. page, and just be like, "Is that like what what iteration of blaster rifle is he holding in this picture?" You know, <laughs> I mean, that that was really cool stuff.
0: What was funny is back in those days, and I don't want to talk about somebody. Don't want to sound like somebody talking about penny postcards here, but weekly did have an immediacy to it. You would get this thing and be like, oh my God, here are all the movies and television shows I can watch this week. Mm -hmm. And it felt incredibly immediate. Um, It also was interesting because it was this gateway to nerdery. You talk about nerd culture. Mm -hmm. That was, that was on the edge of how nerdy you could be in a mainstream publication at the time probably was the leading edge of how nerdy you could be about star wars and Harry Potter and all these other things. Um, that was a gateway drug to the nerd culture world, the vulture world, the ringer, everything we have now. Yeah. And then the cool part about EW, which I remembered with Glyberman and Burr, was like, it had a spine editorially. It had critics.
2: Yeah, it did for real. It
0: had letter grades. It had features that were not just like, there's an awesome movie coming out. Check it out. It had, It had standards to it. And it was not just something that was like, Here's the cool stuff to watch, but here's the stuff that's great. And here's the stuff that's not so great. Mm-hmm. Really interesting combination when you think about it. We also lost the print edition of Parade Magazine this year. By the way, this weird state of journalistic quasi-death is you lose the print edition, but you still exist in some form, at least notionally on the web. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Long form is still a podcast, but it's stopped recommending articles in 2022 Washington post magazine was just shuttered a couple of days ago by management over there. And finally we lost book forum Mm -hmm. just a week or so ago. Any thoughts on that publication for people who might not have been reading book forum or have worked in the world where book forum had some sway.
2: I mean, it's one of the more shocking losses, uh, uh, in a list that you know a long list this year and and, and certainly in, in previous years uh when you tally them all up book form just sort of seemed like i'm not quite sure it was ever super profitable so I, I don't really know what you know what the it, it seems weird that it would ever get to a point where it couldn't continue um also it sort of seems like in this day and age that there you know there's always it seems like there's always a half life or the ability to find to discover a half life for journal for you know outlets like that like uh and maybe it still will you know I mean I'm not just talking about like the sports illustrated apparel line but also just like why not could you not sell book form to somebody who would continue it as a blog or you know <laughs> whatever
0: mm-hmm.
2: um uh but yeah I mean it's it was one of the most sort of low key, but intrinsic pieces of the sort of book world. And, um, you know, as a reader, as an editor, you know, as someone who worked in publishing, but also as particularly as a reader, it's like when you pick up a paperback book and you look on the back, well, you know, if there's like a glowing blurb from the New York Times you know there's some level of significance conveyed by that but if you if you're looking for like the two or three sentence blurb that actually like can convince me to buy a book book form was up there you know book form was maybe cream of the crop um and it may i mean yeah i'm just trying to think of. i mean it's like weirdly like yeah book form book. there's nothing with the consistency of book forum um and it's just incredibly like disheartening that they would disappear.
0: He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Okay. And oh Redu-
2: high no, no I know, why don't you? God.
0: <laughs> Reduction Magic by Erica Cervantes. I didn't mean for this episode to sound so downbeat, but that's okay. Right? This is this is news. This is this is media stuff. I don't know that this ever feels quite as jolly <laughs> as some other as some other beats in this world. Coming up this Wednesday on the Press Box, Stephen Roderick is going to join me to talk about the piece he wrote 10 years ago on Lindsay Lohan and the director Paul Schrader making a movie together. If you want to go find it on Google, go find it and read it. You will really enjoy the backstory. David Shoemaker and I are going to sail away for the holidays. David's going to celebrate a birthday. Happy early birthday. Got some plans for that you want to share with us?
2: um i don't actually know i don't have any plans usually i um you know my 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 younger son is going to be four on january 1st so my birthday just generally fades into his birthday um you know good way to be mine's december 31st and you're obligated to stay up till midnight anyway because it's you know the the ball (laughs) drops or whatever and then you know it's somebody else's birthday so i pass the torch as the ball drops and Yeah, I think we're probably gonna celebrate him a little bit more than me this year.
0: I loved it when we lived together because on New Year's Eve we'd have what passed for a nice dinner Mm -hmm. early to celebrate your birthday. Yeah. And I think I would pay or try to pay if I had any money. And then the night would just turn into New Year's Eve. Yeah. So we'd still be celebrating, but it would just it was kind of a chocolate in my peanut butter kind of holiday.
2: Yeah. We'd always go to somebody else's party or event. And then at midnight, people would start buying me the drinks. Like I would just yeah. sort of like co-opt whatever
0: was going on. <laughs> Be like, you know, it's his birthday too, right?
2: Yeah. Or not at midnight. Like once we got there, it was like, wait, yeah, you're here. I was going you're, you're, your, you you're here on your birthday. Like you're doing this <laughs> instead of
0: something. Let me get you a drink. <laughs> like, Do you know what kind of plans we normally have? Not sure. a lot. All right. More lukewarm takes in 2023. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.